0: Well we can turn back to the chapter we read, John chapter 20, sorry John 21 and verse 20, where we're told Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. let like us to think today about this description, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This description of of John is given five times and each of them occurs in the Gospel of John. They also occur at the end of the life of Jesus, first time it's used is in John chapter thirteen, where the Peter sees John lying on Christ's breast, but John is not called John; it's just called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then we get it again at the cross, or the disciple that Jesus loved was given the responsibility of looking after the mother of Jesus. It occurs again in John 21. So John 20, when Mary Magdalene tells them about the resurrection of Jesus, and we're told that the disciple that Jesus loved outran Peter. And here Peter after confessing his own love for Jesus, and there must be some kind of message in the construction of the passage here, mustn't there? Because after confessing his own love for Jesus, Peter turns and speaks, speaks to John. John is described as the one whom Jesus loved. Yet he hadn't had the opportunity, we might say, to confess his love for Jesus, <clears throat> as Peter has just had. Anyway, the point I'm making is, it's John himself that calls himself this. Nobody else calls him it. Peter didn't say, You're the disciple that Jesus loves, therefore ask him this question. Peter, sorry, John, uses this description 60 years after the events have taken place. There's no hint that the name was used at the time the events took place. It's actually John reflecting on his... Experiences of life uh, when Jesus was here on earth and this is how he describes himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, um, what do you think of this title? Do you think it's indicating that John was special? That somehow or other He's number one. We are aware that um, there were twelve apostles and out of the twelve, three were given special occasions. Peter, James and John, they were invited into the room when Jesus raised Jairus from the dead, Jairus' daughter from the dead and they were invited by him out at the Mount of Transfiguration and they were also invited to be closer to him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And quite often people assume that uh, the reason that they were given those um, privileges Was because Jesus loved them more. Is that true? Maybe they were given these privileges because of the positions they were going to have later on. And that it was preparation for importance, for important roles in the church afterwards. Because when we turn to the book of Acts, for example, well, James dies very early. But Peter and John, well, they're at the forefront. So that particular invitation to be with (coughs) (coughs) them on these three special occasions may not be anything to do with love as such, but it may be just to do with their position in the church. But because we sometimes think that these three were given these roles of love we jump to the conclusion that not only was there three that had a special place but out of the three there was one who had a special place. And of course we are <clears throat> helped in that for not in that um, process by recalling that at the Last Supper which is actually the First Supper but at that occasion Jesus allowed John to lean on his breast and for some reason we assume that he always did But did he? Is this chapter, so this title, the self-description indicating favoritism trivial? Or is he saying something else? What do you think? Because what you think about it will affect how you think about other things. Because if you think that's what it all means, you'll inevitably think that Jesus loves some people more than others. Won't you? But does he? As we think about about it today, I just want to think about a few things few introductory comments about it and then how did Jesus love John? In what ways did he do so? And then thirdly, some applications. Well, we can certainly say about this title as you mentioned already, it's his chosen self-identity. It's quite a surprising title, at least I think it is. I mean, John himself is known as the Apostle of Love. Apparently, according to some traditions from the early church, when he was an old man, he just went round the congregation that he was in, saying, brothers, love one another. And of course, when you read his letters, they're all full of love, aren't they? As he exhorts the the people to whom he's writing his letters, that they would continue in their love to one another. And there's evidence in the Gospels that perhaps John himself had a stronger love for Jesus than the other disciples had. After all, it was John, he's the only one of the disciples that's at the cross. But he was not, that's not the only time he showed his love toward the end. I mean, he went to the high priest's house after Jesus was arrested. And Peter there, well, he denied that he knew Jesus. But John didn't. And then when we go to the, later on that day, to the cross, as I just mentioned, there's John. John is there. He's prepared to go and identify himself with Jesus after he's been, not just when he's been tried but after he's been sentenced to death and is dying. John is there. So he's a great love for Jesus. It would be very easy for him to be known as the disciple who loved Jesus, wouldn't it? And if he wanted to call himself that, the disciple who loved Jesus, well, who would object? He had actually shown that throughout throughout his life. He was prepared to express his love for Jesus in all kinds of ways, and we'll think of some of them later on. Yet yeah, that's not how he chooses to describe himself, does he? He doesn't say, John, the one who loved Jesus. But John is the one who Jesus loved. And of course, there's a world of difference in that, isn't there? If he had described himself as John, the one who loved Jesus, which would have been very true, But if he had described himself as that, he would be drawing attention to himself, wouldn't he? Whereas when he describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved, he's actually hiding himself. He's putting himself out of the picture. We have to work out who he was each time the phrase is used. It's actually an expression of his humility, isn't it? To call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It might not necessarily be a title indicating his privileges, but just expressing his humility. So it's his chosen identity. But it's also An expression of what he delights in, isn't it? John. What's John's delight? His delight, of course, is Jesus. Humanly speaking, when he comes to write his gospel, what does he write about? And we we can compare the Gospels. Uh, uh. And as we do, we discover three are very similar. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're almost identical. Not quite, but they're almost. But John is very different. What is John doing in his Gospel? He's telling us things about Jesus that the others haven't told us. And when we run through the Gospel of John, we can see that. I mean, it's John that gives them the wonderful title of the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The word we there is very important, isn't it? We beheld his glory. And the word beheld is interesting too. It implies a continuation. They just kept on seeing it. We beheld his glory. It's John that tells us that he first showed forth his glory at the wedding in Cana. And John was there. But John not only calls him the word, but it's John that calls or tells us that John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's John that tells us that Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. What a wonderful picture of Christ. It's John that tells us that Jesus is the one who is the true vine. Jesus tells John tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. And it's a very interesting thing, just to go through the Gospel of John, And notice the things that John says that the others don't. And they all gel together, of course. But as we read the Gospel of John, and I'm sure you've picked up, that it's almost written from the inside. Written by someone who's actually rejoicing in what he's writing, and he loves to reflect on them. I mean, it's John that tells us all about what happened after the feeding of the 5,000, because he's taken up with Jesus. He goes on and on about it, but never in a boring manner. It's John that tells us about the prolonged discussion with the women of Samaria. Nobody else. And the other three Gospels is not mentioned. It's John that tells us about the, the rather frank exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. The other Gospels don't mention that encounter. It's John that tells us about the wonderful way Jesus responded to Mary Magdalene on the day that he rose from the dead. And all these things tell us just how much John delighted to think about Jesus and to show what he had done. And I think he reveals his delight in Jesus in this title. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And when he says at the end of his gospel if all the things could be written that Jesus said and did, the world itself would not contain them. And he's almost implying, if I was to tell you all the things he did for me, as John, the world itself would not contain it. It's all about the love of Christ. And of course, this statement, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's a striking aff- affirmation of assurance, isn't it? How's our assurance today? I mean, that is a question, isn't it? How is our assurance? I mean, our assurance sometimes can be a bit clinical, based on deductions. And in a certain sense, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we... um, We look at our lives, we engage in some self-examination, and of course that is important. I'm not demeaning that at all. But assurance is more than that. Assurance involves awareness. Awareness that Jesus loves me. And John has certainly got that, hasn't he? Of course, one reason for that, of course, is that he knows Jesus. He doesn't just know himself. And it's important because we're dealing with a spiritual relationship. And it's good in assurance to be able to tick the boxes. And say, yes, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And yes, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. But where's Jesus in it all? I mean, that's what John would say to us, wouldn't he? And certainly this description of himself, this self description, This one liner. It tells us that Christ was at the center of his assurance. And if we're Christian, is he at the center of yours? Anyway, that's some introduction. Secondly, how did Jesus love him? And of course, I suppose there's lots of answers that could be given to that question. But here's just some ways, and I'm sure you know them all yourselves, but here are some ways that he loved Jesus, or how Jesus loved John, I should say. Well, he loved him eternally, didn't he? In John chapter 17, another chapter that the other Gospels don't mention, John records the prayer of Jesus about um, how Jesus prayed the night he was arrested. And in that prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says lots of things about these 11 men. Says to the Father how he has kept them and so on. But one thing he says to them, and we know what he says there, yours they were and you gave them to me when did that happen? they belong to the father as it were because he's in a sense the one who's going to create them And also we find from Paul in Ephesians that the Father has chosen them. Big mysteries, not mysteries to worry about, because they're secrets. But having done that, the Father gives them to Jesus. It's an eternal thing. It's just put into human words for us to try and understand it. It doesn't mean that there was a time when God didn't know what he was going to do and had some kind of discussion about it. He always knew. But anyway, the Father gave John to Jesus And Jesus loved the gift. One of the saddest things in life is to get a gift you don't like, isn't it? And the Heavenly Father was certainly not going to give to his son a gift he didn't like. He gave to his son the gift that his son would love the best. And they're in eternity. And it's good just to think about it. There in eternity, the Father and the Son are thinking about humans. And the Father gives a present to his Son. And among those who give, he gives to his Son is John. And John there, as he's writing these words, can say about this amazing love of Jesus, it actually never began has always been there in the heart of the Son of God. It's eternal. And all down through these, whatever word you want to call it, down through eternity, Jesus loved John. That's not the only expression of his love he loved Jesus incarnationally I suppose one question we could have asked of this is what are you prepared to do to meet someone what would you do if you want to meet somebody from, I don't know Australia somewhere far away what would you do to meet them? Of course, if you loved them, you'd probably do anything to meet them. But what if they live somewhere where everyone thought it's impossible for you to meet them? What would you do in that scenario? What's the divine son? What's he going to do in order to meet an insignificant human creature? I mean, the human creature can do nothing to meet the exalted son. However gifted John is, he can't climb the ladder. There's no ladder to climb. It's impossible. But strangely enough, there's a ladder the sun could go down. And the Son of God he came down. He was conceived and he was born. He humbled himself. I mean this appropriate, isn't it, for humans to humble themselves, but for God? Although he was in the form of God, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. Why? to meet the ones he loved. Imagine if Jesus had never become a human. We wouldn't be sitting here for a start. What would there be to think about if Jesus hadn't become a human? But he did. He loved John incarnationally. And we could also say he loved John Servantly? No idea that word exists or not, but anyway. He loved John as a servant. Is there a word that describes the entire life of Jesus? How would we describe him? There he is in Nazareth working away in the carpenter's shop. What's he doing? Luke tells us what he's doing. He's subject to Mary and Joseph. Who do we use the word subject of? And then there's his three years of public ministry. And he himself describes it. I'm among you as one that serves. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the one word that describes the life of Jesus surely is the word servant. And he dignified that word because of what he did. And amongst his activities for as a servant is all the things he said for John, did to John, helped John. And we'll think about them in a minute. They he loved him servantly. He loved him also sacrificially, didn't he? And John, we might say, had a front row seat for that one. As I mentioned earlier, John saw Jesus rolling about the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why is he rolling about the ground? In deep distress. I mean, one reason, obviously, he's about to drink the cup the Father's going to give him. For what's in that cup? Our sin. John sins. John's sins. I mean, John didn't recognize it at the time. It's extraordinary, isn't it, to think of somebody falling asleep when you've got a front row seat. But he did, and I'm sure he regretted it, but he still remembered what he saw. And he realized that Jesus had loved him sacrificially Followed Jesus to the high priest's house. He saw every slap that Jesus received. At the time he might have thought, Well, that's terrible. But afterwards he'd realised that he's doing all this for me. And he went to the cross. And there at the cross, his love was superlative, wasn't it? When I mean, John saw Jesus hanging on the cross. He heard Jesus speak from the cross. And everything he spoke from the cross was a word of love. He may not have heard the first saying, Why have you forsaken me? Because before that he was told to take Mary away son's love not wanting his mother to see the ultimate moment when the worst cry that's ever come out of human lips was made but John knew that Jesus endured wrath son of God loved him not surprising he called himself the one whom Jesus loved. And the six decades since then, John has experienced the love of Jesus from heaven. He's not, when he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, he's not just talking about what he saw on earth. He knew Jesus for a few years on earth. He has spent 60 years getting sanctified by Jesus. And all that sanctification that turned John from being the son of thunder into the apostle of love, that was done by Jesus from heaven. The John who wanted to call fire down from heaven was chained. John, who wanted to climb to seat number two on the same level as seat number three in the kingdom, he was changed by the Savior who loved him. These are just some reasons for, the love of, for John saying that he's a disciple whom Jesus loved. And when we turn to the book of Revelation, And John has got something to say about Jesus. He tells us what he wants to say. In Revelation 1, there, in verses 5 and 6, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus just loved John. Loved him eternity past. Loved him in different ways when he was here on earth. And showed his love to John from heaven. So why shouldn't John call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved? As we close... Just a couple of thoughts. This relationship, we put it this way, motivated John's service as a saint. Paul said, the love of Christ compels us or constrains us. And John would have said, same with me. Why did he do all he did? Why would he, as an old man in Patmos, start writing when they don't have such things as paper? Why would he do it? It's not an easy thing for him to write. I mean, the physical act of writing. But he's prepared to do it. Because Jesus loves him. The highest motive for service is not our love for Jesus. It's a contributing factor. But if we spend our time looking at our love for Jesus, we won't do very much. Our temperature goes up and down. But the one thing that remains red hot is the love of Christ. And if it doesn't compel us, where are we? So it motivated John's service as a saint. And it maintained his high level of assurance. You can tick a box saying you love Jesus. I can tick a box saying I love Jesus. But remember what McShane said? For every look at yourself, including your love, take ten looks at Christ. It's good to love Jesus. It's better that Jesus loves us. That's how to maintain a high level of assurance. If you've got ten minutes, spend a couple looking at yourself, but the eight looking at Christ. And you'll come out far happier. also the message you wanted to share, isn't it? He's got a wonderful message to share, but how do you share it without drawing attention to yourself? Well, John found a way, didn't he? He spoke about himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And of course, he's not saying by that That he's the only person that can do this. This is a title for every Christian. Or it should be. The one whom Jesus loved. And if you haven't begun the Christian life. It always begins by discovering the love of Christ. In one way or another. So, we should all aim to be the one whom Jesus loved. It doesn't indicate John's uniqueness at all. It actually describes a normal Christian life. Shall we pray?